Well, when we started looking at Psalm 110, I, I told you that the, the stated goal was that, um, that, that Jesus Christ might be more exalted in our hearts. Um, our confidence in Him would be greater than when we began just sort of diving into this psalm. So I hope that's happening in you. I know that we, this is sort of um, fragmented in terms of being able to do it week after week. That doesn't happen because of just the normal flow of life and business meetings and prayer meetings, those kind of things, which are vital things as well. But I hope that even if you haven't just, um, we haven't even jumped into the psalm itself yet in depth, but if you haven't mastered it, that you are, that you are, your heart is being stirred as you hear these messages to um, exalt Christ in your heart, to have greater love and confidence in Him. So what we've been doing the last few times is just because this is such a reference psalm in the New Testament, we've been going to look and see what the New Testament writers say about it. I want to do it one more time. I've tried to give a, a kind of a general uh, flavor of the different, the different sort of categories that they saw this psalm in. I want to do it one more time because I want to look at one phrase in particular in verse 1. Um, and so here's the verse 1 again. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In the last few times we've been looking at the, the, Jesus being at the right hand of God and what that meant for, for, for him as being our high priest. So um, what if there were such a one who would be your advocate who's at the right hand of God? And Hebrews 8 says you have such a high priest. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. So therefore, Romans 8.34 says, you know, um, who, is, who is he that condemneth? You know, what condemnation can be found against me? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen, that is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. I want to, look at, I want to go back to the New Testament tonight, look at the same phrase again, and, and, and the rest of the verse, the, the enemies of footstool, and think about it again more in terms of Christ as the elevated king and sovereign over all. So one of the passages that is most um, familiar in the New Testament that quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, is the passage in Ephesians chapter 1. So turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and as you're turning there, just remember that Ephesians 1 is, is, um, repeats some form of this phrase, in Christ, many times. So Ephesians 1 is drawing Christ into our experience, or drawing us into Christ. We have received all spiritual blessings in Christ, right? So we've received redemption in Christ. We have become adopted into the family of God by the work of Jesus Christ, so that we are accepted in the beloved. We are the beloved of God, accepted because of the work of Christ. We have forgiveness through Christ. Um, he has abounded toward us in wisdom and in prudence. So we have this great hope that is ours because of our being engrafted into Christ and of his work on our behalf. And so as, as Paul is thinking about that and expressing this, he, he, he is um, greatly desirous. So he's urgently moved that we might fully understand what it is to be in Christ, what a powerful position it is, what an elevated place it is, a privileged place it is to be in Jesus Christ. And this is to all of those who are in Christ. So this has nothing to do with your place on earth. So you can be the lowliest pauper. Um, you can be the, uh, the simplest person. Or you can be the highest king. But if you are in Christ, 
you are in um, this incredible position. And yet, you, you can nod your head and go, yeah, that sounds really, really good. And yet, if you're living in the place of the lowest pauper, um, or if you are living in a place of great uh, trial, you're not going to be so quick to accept that, right? If I'm so privileged, if I'm so blessed, then why is my life so hard? And that stirs our thoughts towards um, spiritual sluggishness, towards um, bitterness, towards uh, a lack of trust towards God. We've talked about some of that in this message on bitterness. We have one more to go in a couple of weeks on that. Um, but so Paul knows it is vital. It is absolutely vital wherever you are to understand what you have in Christ. And so he, he prays this prayer at the end of Ephesians 1 that you're very familiar with. Let me just, um, let me just read it for you. So as he, verse 16, he doesn't cease to give thanks to God for them in his prayers. But this is his prayer. You're very familiar with this prayer, but listen to it again. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So he's saying, I want something to be revealed to you, fully opened up to you, that, and that this revelation might produce this spirit of wisdom in your heart, in, in, your, in your thoughts, right? So the wisdom's only going to come, true wisdom to navigate life is only going to come through the revelation of what Paul is praying for, for, for you seeing something and knowing something. Here's what it is. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I'm going to talk about that a little bit on Saturday at Ripley. Let me just, let me just quote something for you. In Corinthians... Chapter 3, the Corinthians are, are, are struggling over, you know, their position. You know, some think, well, I'm a little bit better in a little better position because I am a follower of Paul. Another, another says, no, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. He's more dynamic, so I'm in a better position. And another says, well, I'm of Cephas, and he's, he's a great guy. He was, he was with Christ, and so I'm, I'm really more spiritual. And Paul is... Paul is saying, you guys are so carnal. Not just, not just you're, so, you're so, um, so easily engaged in battle. Not just that you're so easily polemical. But Paul is saying, you guys do not understand what you actually have. If you have Christ, Paul says, you have Paul. He's yours. And Apollos is yours. And Cephas is yours. It doesn't stop there. He just goes on. And he says, he says, and life is yours. And things present are yours. And things to come are yours. And death is yours. And Christ is yours. And you are Christ. And Christ is God. Isn't that amazing? It's all, everything. If you have Christ, you have everything. Okay? Let them see this. Let them see the glory of of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us for who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality 
and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You may have recognized Psalm 110 verse 1 there, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And then the next verse sort of alludes to Psalm 110, but really is directly taken from Psalm 8, and hath put all things under his feet. Okay, that's Psalm 8, but it's the same idea of Psalm 110. He is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, placed under his feet. And so what is Paul praying for? Yes, Paul is praying for... um, Paul is praying for uh, them to see the, the, the inheritance they have. But Paul is praying for them to see where Christ is and who Christ is. Let them see the, 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 the glory that has been displayed, the power that has been displayed in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead and then elevating him to the right hand of the majesty on high, to raise him to the right hand of God in the heavenly places. So he wants you to see that Christ is the crowning power of God. See, I want to see the glory of God. I want to see the power of God displayed. He says, look at where Jesus is. Jesus is, has been elevated to the right hand of God. That means that Jesus is king. That means that Jesus successfully accomplished his work. That means that Jesus reigns. He's sovereign over all. Now listen, we've been preaching that as long as this church has been around and, the, and, and preachers have been preaching this as long as the revelation of Scripture has been around. So we know this already. So it's not enough to just say, know that God is sovereign. This is something that Paul understands is a spiritual exercise. He's praying, let their eyes be enlightened. Let their heart be opened to this truth. Let it be revealed to their hearts. In other words, this is a, this is a great spiritual need that you and I have. This is what the New Testament saw. Paul said, you have a great spiritual need to fully embrace and fully run to, fully grasp where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of God, and all things have been placed under his feet. In other words, it's good to know it in your head. But if you don't know it in your heart, if it's not the moving influence of your heart, you will not have, you will not have the power that you so desperately need. You will not have the comfort you so desperately need. And so let me just say a few things about this. Number one, it's amazing. It, it, it's stunning. So where is Christ in relation to all the things? He's, he's far above, right? He's the sovereign. So it says this. He's far above all what? All principalities and powers and mights and dominion and every name that is named in this world and the one to come. He's far above it all. But the question is, do dominions, do principalities, do powers acknowledge this? Most of the time, the answer to that is what? Is no. No. Um, But they're talking about individuals. I am the master of my own fate, right? 
or talking about what we consider to be powers in this earth, governments, kings, emperors, empires, big CEOs of huge corporate, you know, multinational corporations. Who, who's, in, who's in charge? I, I, I mean, remember what, what, what God warned Israel of in Deuteronomy 8? He said, I'm going to place you. I mean, it could not be any more clear that Israel was delivered into Canaan by the supernatural power of God, could it? I mean, it couldn't be any more clear. He, he fed them for 40 years with manna that dropped down from heaven every day. They crossed across the Red Sea, and then they crossed again later um, into Canaan through waters that were opened up. Jericho, its walls fell down flat as they marched around it. They were given conquest over all their enemies, guaranteed victory as long as they followed God. They were given the good of the land, this land that flowed with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy 8, God says, you better be careful because here's what's going to happen. You're going to get there and you're going to think that you're the one that's powerful. You're going to think that you're the one who brought all this to yourself and that you've earned this by your own effort and that you are the, you are the, 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 uh, the, the deserved recipients of all these good graces and you, that you did it by yourself. You're not going to need me. So if Israel could do that, what about the heathen nations? Brothers and sisters, sometimes God will reveal this prayer of Paul. God will reveal this truth. It's a truth whether they like it or not. God will reveal this truth to even heathen kings. So for a couple of examples, I've been, I've been looking at the book of Ezra today because Ezra is where we're at in our Old Testament survey. And Ezra is filled with this truth. In Ezra chapter 1, if you remember the history, um, Israel uh, had, or Judah had for 70 years been in Babylonian captivity, right? And then God, through the, um, through the, through the Persians, <laughs> go read Daniel, amazing story of God overthrowing Babylon and bringing up Cyrus, who God had prophesied through Isaiah that Cyrus would be raised up hundreds of years before to deliver them from Babylon. And Cyrus, this heathen king of Persia who does not know the God, makes this edict that they will return to, uh, to Judah. So he opens the way for the people of Judah to return back to Jerusalem. Here's what it says in Ezra 1 verse 2. This is the words of Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is not Moses, the mediator between God and man. This is not Aaron. This is not Joshua. This is not Abraham. This is not Isaac. This is not Jacob. This is a heathen king. Here's what he says. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of this earth. Like, just, just imagine for a minute. If, if tonight you go home and you turn on the news and President Biden is speaking with clarity and he says... I just want to tell you that God is the one who has placed me in this position as President of the United States, and I am going to do all I can to do what God has said. Can you imagine that? It's unthinkable, isn't it? But this really happened. The one who was as the emperor of all the nations of the earth as known at this time says, I understand that the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. It's astounding, isn't it? 
Think about uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego just a few years before in Babylon who are, because they will not bow down to <coughs> the, 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 the glory of the king, are thrown to a fiery furnace. And here is another heathen king, king of Persia. And he says, I understand that God has given me this king. And I am going to obey his charge to build him a house at Jerusalem so these people from Judah can go back home. That's how the way was opened up. Isn't that a stun- a stunning? So, see, this is a spiritual thing for God to open your eyes to see. Friends, we should be praying that God would open the eyes of all men, whether, whether, whether it was a spiritual work or just with his ability to move the hearts of kings as he will. You see, let me just confess something to you. I just announced a thing about Josh a minute ago. And let me tell you what I did in my mind when I heard the news. I, I, try, I, I wasn't trying to do this. It just happened. I'm, not, I'm taking credit for it, though. It's a debit, not a credit. I tried in my mind to work out every other scenario except God did something amazing there. Isn't that something? Like, oh, they probably had the wrong information, or maybe it wasn't that bad to start with. Or, you know how it goes in your mind? So we're going to have all these naturally explained scenarios, except the one that there's a God in heaven. There's, Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the majesty on high, and he reigns over all. That's what we need for our eyes to be open to see that. And so God can do that even in a natural way to heathen kings. This story continues through the rest of the book of Ezra. Here's another king in Ezra chapter 7. This is a king, Artaxerxes. So sort of the history of Ezra, the book of Ezra, is they they come back and they start to build. And then they have this opposition. There's opposers who don't want them to build. And so they begin to discourage them and they just kind of stop building. Isn't that something? They have been miraculously rescued Again, by God, from deserved judgment, for not obeying his law. And they get back under the edict of the ruler of all nations, as it were at that time, the king of Persia. And then some opposition hits, and they get discouraged. And they kind of stop building the temple. And instead, they build their own houses. They start marrying the people of the land. Guess what? They're, on, they're back on the, the road to hell that quickly. Isn't that something? You know what God does? He's so gracious. Nathan preached it a little while ago. He sends Haggai. He goes, consider your ways. What are you doing? You're dwelling in these sealed houses, and the house of God is under disrepair? So God makes the way again for them to build the temple, and the temple is built, and then this... 50-year 50 50 year gap happens between Haggai 6 and Haggai 7. I mean, between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. It's probably when the book of Esther occurs, right around this time. And there's not a... There's a, there's a temple, but it doesn't mean much because the heart of the people is not turned towards God. I just said, they're, they're, remember, they're, God had called them to be separate, to be different, to be, to be godly. And instead, they're worldly. So they begin to go again after the people of the land. They begin to intermarry with 
with heathen, idolatrous people. And all the work of God to, 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 to bring them to repentance seems to be gone. Isn't that something? Do we need the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened, to see Christ as he is? To see who is truly to be feared? Would you say that you're... Would you say that the world has much more of a draw on you than what you would like to admit if you were sitting in the room with Christ right now? You know what you need? You need the Word of God speak to you. You need to be illuminated by the Spirit of God so the eyes of your understanding would be opened to see where Christ is and where the true power is. And the things of this world wouldn't be so flashy and, 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 and uh, desirous. So for 50 years it's like this. And then you know who came to bring them the word? Ezra did. You know where Ezra was? Ezra was back in Persia. Ezra was a man who was preparing his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it. What a man, right? He's a man that he sees, he sees God. But Ezra can't get there. You know how Ezra gets there? You know how Ezra, this man who has prepared his heart, He's burning inside to, to, to seek God's law and to do God's law. So his, his word will match with his, with his walk and then to teach God's law. I want to understand God. I want to, do, to walk with God. And I want others to be impacted by my life to also seek after God. That's his, that's his, his burning passion. But you know how he gets there? Another key. Artaxerxes. No indication that Artaxerxes is a Christian. Another heathen king. You know what God does? God opens up the eyes of Artaxerxes' understanding. Whether in a spiritual way or just a, this is a reality way, I don't know. I suspect this is just a reality way. In other words, I don't think, there's no indication that Artaxerxes became became a follower of of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he knew who the God of heaven was. So Artaxerxes makes this decree that whatever Ezra wants for this task, Ezra gets. Wherever you go. Here's what he says, verse 12 of chapter 7. Artaxerxes, king of of kings, that's how he knows himself. I am the king of kings. I am the, I'm the highest ranking one of earthly kings. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. <laughs> Do you, you see, what, see what I'm saying here? He says, I know who I am in relation to the people of this earth. I'm the highest. But I also know there's one higher than me. And Ezra is a priest and scribe of this God of heaven, I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites 
in my realm, which reminded of their own free will to go to Jerusalem, go with thee. You are sent of the king to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is on hand, and to carry silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel. Now, he may have just been superstitious. I don't know. He may have just been, you know what, I'm going to send this gold, hoping that it'll give me some favor. But for whatever reason, he knew he was, he was greasing the way for Ezra to go and to work. And then he says, verse 16, And all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon, with a freewill offering of the people and the priests, offering willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem, that thou mayest buy speedily with this money bullocks and rams and lambs. Why is he giving this money? You can go start doing the sacrifices again. You start worshiping the way that God, the God of Israel, has told you to worship. I want you to have all this money to buy this stuff, not to bring me riches, but to go offer sacrifices unto the will of your God. And for vessels and all these things. And here's what he says in verse 23. This is, this is this heathen king. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Verse 25. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know not. He commissions them to go preach the law of God. That's astounding, friends. Artaxerxes, his heathen king, commissions Ezra to go set up judges to rule over uh, Judah as, 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 as God would have them rule and to go teach the law of God to the people. And here's his, here's his rationale. I'm going to do this because why should there be the wrath of the God of heaven against me? Oh, do you long to see your mayor or your court clerk or your president, or your husband, or, or whoever. You see, friends, the greatest need of our life is to see Christ where he is. Far above all principalities, all powers. But that's not all of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 says, I want you to see where he is, and I want you to see that he is yours. He, for Christians, for you, for believers, he is working in you. All things have been made subject to him, and he is the head of the church. He is, Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of his power. He is building his kingdom one subject at a time through the sovereign work of the Spirit upon the heart. He is building his church. He is keeping his church. He is building his, his kingdom. He is, he is broadening his reign. And the hearts and the lives of those who were given to him before the world began... And how do we know this? Because he's already purchased the kingdom. 
He's already paid the price. He died. He rose. He ascended. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Therefore, it's all His. It all belongs to Him. And He's building it. Do you, do you live with that sort of consolation about the details of your life? He's building us. He's working in me. You see, there's not a yeah, but at the end of this chapter. There is, you are his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. <coughs> isn't, that, isn't that astounding? This is your great need. You see, Christ not only as raised, but Christ as yours. Artaxerxes saw him as Christ raised, right? But not as Christ his. <laughs> Paul says, I want you to see him as Christ is and Christ is yours. He's working for me. All things working together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Been given to his son. That he might be what? The firstborn among many brethren. That he might not lose any. That he might have many brethren that look like him. And so life. And as Paul says, in death. I love this. Death is yours, he says in Corinthians. Death belongs to you. Death is not your enemy anymore. But death is a portal to your glorification. Your sight of Christ. It all belongs to you. Does death belong to the, to the natural man? No. Death is the enemy. But everything belongs to you. Things present. Trials and temptations and struggles and persecution and, and things present. And things, that's what Paul says in Romans 8, right? It all belongs to you. It's all for you. You're more than conquerors. Because Christ has conquered and you're his. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. Well, we are way out of time. So I didn't even talk about the, the under his feet stuff. Um, let me just say something about that real quick. Um, and we'll look at this probably when we get to the psalm. Um, but the, the, whole, the New Testament sees the, um, the um, all enemies being made as footstool really in, in two ways. Um, by the way, being under his feet and his feet crushing to make enemies his footstool, does that remind you of any Old Testament promise of Christ early, early on? Genesis 3.15, right? That the, the serpent is going, to bruise his head, is going to bruise his heel, and his heel is going to crush the serpent's head. Maybe also of, of the whole foundation, Christ is his cornerstone, who, who is going to grind to powder those who are under him. So, the, so how do we understand that? Um, we understand that in two different ways. How, does, how are people made the footstool of Christ? Well, there's two ways to be the footstool of Christ. One is to bow before Christ and place his feet on your, on your, on your, on your, head, on your head, right? Psalm 99 verse 5. Um, worship the Lord your God. Uh, um, well, let me just read it. Psalm 99 verse 5 says, um, oh goodness, should know that. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his, what, footstool, right? So that's saying, I'm going to come in a right position to him and place his feet on my head. I am 
gladly and voluntarily acknowledging him as my Lord, as my sovereign, as, my, as the greater. But the other way is to have him just put his feet upon your head and crush you. And that's the two ways that the scriptures see that occurring. Um, Hebrews 1 talks about the, the footstool, and Hebrews 2 says he is destroying them that had the power of death. He's crushing the head of all his enemies. And so, listen, friends, you will be at the footstool of Christ in one way or the other. That's the, that's the thing you need to understand. You will either be the footstool willingly, worshiping him, glad to be there, or he will be crushing you as he, he puts his, head, his, his feet upon your head. Um, and, the, and the other thing I was going to say about that is, is this, is that the scriptures understand this in an already and, and still to come fashion as well, right? So um, it's already happening. He's already placing his enemies at his footstool. He's doing this. He did this once and for all at the cross as he crushed the head of Satan. But, and he is doing this as he adds to his church, according to Acts 2, um, that, he's, that those who are being pricked in the heart are coming to Christ by the work of the Spirit, and they're confessing him, and, and they're coming to the footstool. And he is doing this one person at a time, one kingdom at a time, one, uh, one principality at a time. This is a, a, a progressive thing according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 and, and Hebrews chapter 10. And I love Hebrews 10 because here's what it says. He says, after he had, after he had finished the work, he sat down from henceforth expecting until his enemies be made his footstool. That's the position of Christ today. Christ is in this very calm place. So after, after, the, after the, um, the work, from that point forward, after the work of the cross, the resurrection and the ascension, from that point forward, he sat down from that point forward just calmly waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. That's how you need to see Christ. He is crushing his enemies, one enemy at a time, and he's calmly waiting until they all will be destroyed. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last one to be destroyed will be death. So what's happening in the course of history? The course of history is Christ is, Christ has, by his work on the cross, crushed the enemy as, as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as a guarantee, and he is progressively crushing his enemies until all enemies be destroyed, and the last one to be destroyed will be death, and he will turn the kingdom over to the Father and say, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. What a day that will be, right? What a day that will be. So it is so, 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 so important, according to the New Testament, that you see Christ where he is and that you see him as yours.